Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 54. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the Library of Alexandria and restarted the history of the country of Egypt proper, covering the reign of the second Greek leader, Ptolemy II. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing the history of Egypt, beginning with number two's son, Ptolemy III, Eurogetes, and pushing forward through Ptolemy VI, covering the years 246 through 145 BC. So, essentially 100 years. And with that, let's get started. Actually, before I get started, a bit of an explanation. The rulers of this period, when the remnants of Greece were in control of Egypt, were a long line of usually related kings named Ptolemy. A name followed by a number, then what is best understood as a nickname, at least in our Western sense. Number two, whose name was Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, like I covered last week, had a name that translated to lover of his sister. But, since his sister was previously married to a Macedonian king, and also since Ptolemy II had a first wife, it's a really safe assumption that he did not start his reign with this name, and it was instead assigned to him at a later date, certainly after taking the throne, perhaps after he was gone, maybe simply to keep all of the Ptolemies straight. Which gets me to number two's son and successor, Ptolemy III, Eurogetes, and his name translates to Ptolemy the Benefactor. He was the son of number two and his first wife, the one who wasn't his father's full sister. He would take the throne in 246 BC, when he was in his late 30s. Number three would end up ruling for 24 years. He would marry Berenice of Cyrene. Remember that name because it seems all of the rulers and wives from the period liked all of the same names. His wife would be the first one named Berenice, but not the last. In fact, Ptolemy III would also have a daughter named Berenice, who would die in her infancy. He would have a son named Magas, named after an uncle, the one who led the rebellion against his father. This Magas would meet a different, less ceremonious end which I'll get to in a minute. But these aren't the things he's most remembered for. His most renowned legacy are a series of decrees published as bilingual carvings on massive stone blocks in three writing systems. One such stone stela is the Canopus Stone of 238 BC. There's also the Memphis Stele, aka the Memphis Stone, bearing the decree of Memphis, This decree was carved into stone by his son and successor Ptolemy IV, inscribed around 218 BC. But the renown of these two pale in comparison to his decree carved into stone by his grandson Ptolemy Epapan sometime around 196 BC. This decree is more well known as the Rosetta Stone, which I covered in a previous episode. The actual contents of the decrees set into stone are a bit mundane. First, there are priestly orders, so religious matters. There's also a memorial for his daughter Berenice, the one who died when she was an infant. Then there was something a bit less usual. Apparently, their calendar had gotten a bit out of sync, 
So the king ordered that a leap day be added to the Egyptian calendar of 365 days. And this extra day necessitated date changes for subsequent festivals. These carvings aren't all we know of him. Like so many pharaohs and kings before him, he added to the Temple of Karnak. Like father, like son, number three continued his father's proxy war against the former homeland of Macedon by providing support to the Greek kingdom's enemies. In the case of number three, he provided support to the Achaean League, which was a somewhat loose collection of Greek city-states. But then Sparta came to oppose the League, and appeared more capable and willing to fight the Macedonians. So number three withdrew his support for the allied city-states and instead provided it to Sparta. Either way, he provided support for the enemies of Macedon. But that wasn't his only foray into international affairs. His older sister, Berenice Fernophorus, was a member of the Sulis's court. At the time, the Seleucid were ethnically Greek, who controlled what are today parts of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Turkey. After the death of their father, the Seleucid king found her less useful as his wife, apparently only having her around due to her ties to Ptolemaic Egypt. The Seleucid king then died, and in order to keep control of the kingdom in Seleucidian hands, she, along with her infant son, were murdered. The whole affair is actually mentioned in the Old Testament book of Daniel, in chapter 6, that reads, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to ratify the agreement. But she shall not retain her power, and her offspring shall not endure. She shall be given up, she and her attendants and her child, the one who supported her." End quote. As would be expected, Ptolemy was enraged with the murder of his sister, and his reaction was extreme, but given the circumstances, understandable. He personally led an invasion of the kingdom in a conflict that would become known as the Third Syrian War. During the war, the Ptolemaic Egyptians would capture and control territory as far away as Antioch and Babylon, the Seleucids were outgunned, and when it was over in 241 BC, Ptolemy would gain territory on the northern coast of Syria, including the port city of Antioch. The port would end up paying an annual tribute of 1,500 talents of silver. To put that in perspective, this was an amount equal to about 10% of the amount collected from other parts of Egyptian territory. But that wasn't all he gained in the conflict. He also resecured previously lost Egyptian works of art that had been removed by the Persians when they conquered Egypt. Since he was gone from Egypt to lead the military, he had to leave someone in charge of the country, and he chose his wife, Berenice II, for this role. But things didn't go so well. There was a drought which led to a famine and precipitated civil unrest ultimately culminating in an open revolt. More on the drought in a minute. The revolt was an on-again, off-again, 20-year conflict between the native Egyptians and their Greek rulers. Internally, number three allowed the native Egyptian religion more freedom than had his two predecessors. 
And remember, they were more liberal than the previously ruling Persians. So, overall, the Egyptian religion was freer to worship than it had been in centuries. But he didn't just allow them to worship. He actually provided support economically and promoted the religion, including the support of the now legendary Apis Bull. It's this support that earned him the nickname Ptolemy the Benefactor. In the Canopus Decree, dating to 238 BC, the Egyptian priesthood praised both him and his wife as the, quoting, benefactor gods for their religious support. In the same decree, the priests also noted Ptolemy's drive to maintain the peace through strong national security, noted his good governance, and even made mention to his personal importation, at his own expense no less, of a great volume of grain during the time of drought and low Nile flooding. The drought may have been the result of a volcanic eruption that led to increased atmospheric ash, which in turn led to increased cloudiness and paradoxically decreased precipitation. And we can make something else from this last part. Some millennia after the Hebrew Exodus, and close to 1500 years after the mention of the biblical drought managed by Joseph, Egypt was still dependent on rain and flooding. But then again, they remain so today. And the rest of the world's agriculture is also dependent on precipitation, something we've had in common since the beginning of agriculture. Finally, and as we will see with subsequent rulers, Ptolemy III's rule was one highlighted by trade with their neighbors. It was during number three's reign that the Greek rule of Egypt reached its peak. And while this isn't necessarily new, what is new is the coinage recently uncovered by archaeologists that bear his image. These gold and copper coins have been found in what is today southern Somalia, so to them, Nubia. In this central African nation were also found coins from the reign of his successors Ptolemies IV and V, along with similar coins from late Imperial Rome and Mamluk Sultanate coins. The Mamluk Sultanate was a kingdom in the region lasting from the 13th to the 16th centuries AD. So, this archaeological find has coins in it that were ancient to the people who left them there initially. Back to Ptolemy number 3, but just for a second. Ptolemy III would die of unknown causes in 222 BC. Which gets me to Ptolemy III's successor named, wait for it, Ptolemy IV. His name is more formally known as Ptolemy IV Philopator, with the latter name translating to lover of his father, which you have to admit is much better than number two's name. It's thought that he earned this name due to his particular devotion to his predecessor. His reign is remembered for several things, including another war in Judea. This one better known as part of an attack on King Antiochus III, sometimes called Antiochus the Great, the ruler of Sili Syria, a kingdom that included control of Judea. Ptolemy would personally lead the Egyptian army to victory at Raphia in 217 BC. This conquest would secure the northern borders of the kingdom for the remainder of his reign. 
the persecution of Jewish people by number four during this campaign, can be found in the book of 3rd Maccabees. Essentially, after Ptolemy's victory at the Battle of Raphia, he visited Jerusalem and the Second Temple. But, for some reason, sometimes attributed as a miracle, he was prevented from entering the building. This then led him to hate the Jewish people, and upon his return to Alexandria, he would round up all the Jewish people in the kingdom to put them to death in his hippodrome. But those who agreed to abandon their faith were spared. Now, depending on your faith tradition, you may or may not find this book in your Bible. Eastern Orthodox churches include it, but Catholics and most Protestants do not consider it canonical. The only Protestants that accept it are the Moravian Brethren. It is included in the Bible used by the Armenian Apostolic Church. It's too long to quote in this episode, but is easily found on the internet, and the narrative history found in it is compelling and does yield insight into the time and place. You can judge for yourself if you choose to believe it. Moving along. Number four would take the throne when he was about 23 years old and rule for approximately 17 years until his death at the age of about 40 in the summer of 204 BC. The decline of the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt is thought to have begun during his rule and it was a time of, um, certain royal indulgences, with the best G-rated comparison being to that of the legendary Roman Emperor Caligula. I'll just leave it at that. Do know that he seemed more concerned with these matters than he did the day-to-day running of the government. As such, lower-level ministers and other officials would gain increasing power and control over the country. I think we've heard this song before, and it always, at least in ancient Egypt, would lead to a decline of the country. He was a bit of a tyrant, having his own brother, Magus, put to death in a most gruesome manner. He was scalded to death in his own bathtub. The domestic situation, when combined with the war in Syria and Judea, led to internal turmoil. In the war, the rulers armed the native Egyptian populace, which in turn led to the succession of Upper Egypt from the Lower Greek portion. Once again, the land was divided. For about 20 years, Upper was ruled by a pharaoh known as Harmachus. Harmachus would be succeeded by Ankhmachus. Also during his reign, and possibly to showcase the Lower Country's military prowess, Number four would build a giant naval ship known as the Tessarchores, which translates to the much easier word 40. It was, if it truly existed, a huge galley and perhaps the largest human-powered vessel ever built, but it was likely too large to serve any real military purpose. After all, the larger the vessel, the less maneuverable it is. It said the ship was about 420 feet, or 128 meters in length. To put that in perspective, that's about seven times longer than the Santa Maria, the largest ship Columbus would take across the Atlantic 1,700 years later. 
It was also about half the length of the ill-fated RMS Titanic. Like his father, Number Four's likeness was also found on coins unearthed in the 20th century in Somalia. He would die, but the details of his death at the young age of 40 have been lost to history. We do know that he passed in 204 BC and would be succeeded by his son, Ptolemy V, Epiphanes. Number Five's latter name means illustrious, and Number Five was only five or six years old when he took the throne. So, obviously, he would need the assistance of a regent, and the battle for control among the potential regents would further the decline of the kingdom. When his father died, two leading court officials, Agathocles and Sosabius, were concerned that Number Five's mother, Arsinoa III, would attempt to become the official regent. The two officials acted quickly and had his mother murdered before she even heard of her husband's death. This, as you would suspect, had the added benefit of securing the regency for themselves. Then, only two years later, when the boy king was perhaps seven years old, an Egyptian general, Topolemus, managed to start an internal revolt. His master plan was to kill off the regents. While the king was visible to a crowd, the boy king gave a signal, perhaps out of ignorance or fear, a signal that the general used to stoke the crowd. The mob then attacked and killed Agathocles in an act of revenge for his killing the former queen and mother to the current king. Obviously, a seven-year-old boy had no real clue of the consequences of his actions. Later, when he was around 17 years old, he would get caught up in a war with Syria and Macedon. Backing up a year or two, given the internal problems in Egypt with the boy king and a split kingdom, Antiochus the Great of Seleucia and Philip V of Macedon allied and formed a pact, agreeing to divide amongst themselves the Ptolemaic possessions outside of Egypt proper. Philip would seize several islands and cities in Korea and Thrace. At the same time, at the Battle of Panium in 198 BC, Antiochus would attack and seize Sili, Syria, which included Judea, returning the land from Ptolemy to the Seleucids. In a curious move, especially after his victory and perhaps to cement the deal, Antiochus then gave his own daughter, Cleopatra I, to number five to become his wife. The cement didn't hold, though, as soon the Romans and the Seleucids were fighting, and Ptolemy would ally with Rome. I guess his hatred of the Syrian kingdom was greater than the devotion to one of his wives. On a different front, number five still faced the divided kingdom that arose during his father's reign. In attempting to put an end to the divided kingdom, the young ruler would earn the reputation of being decidedly cruel as well as incredibly cunning. In 197 BC, the city of Lycopolis was held by the forces of Ancmachus, the ruler of the upper kingdom, but his control of the city was slipping, so he retreated to Thebes. The hot, then cold, then hot again conflict would rage for another 12 years, ending when the upper ruler was captured by a lower kingdom general, and with that, the formerly divided country was reunited. Well, almost. 
There were some scattered rebel troops who would continue fighting a scattered conflict for another two years. This would end when Ptolemy promised to forgive the remaining rebels if they only dropped their weapons and surrendered. So they did. And he promptly went back on his word, having the rebels taken into custody, then summarily executed, in an apparently cruel fashion. Cunning, vindictive, treacherous, and victorious. On a completely different note, it was during his reign that his predecessor's decree, now known as the Memphis Decree, was carved into the Rosetta Stone. This carving, in three languages, also deified number five and pronounced concessions to the Egyptian priesthood. It's thought that the rewards given to the priest was a repayment for their support during his fighting the internal rebels. Finally, just like many of his immediate predecessors, coins bearing his image were found in Somalia in the 1930s. Number five would die in 181 BC at the ripe old age of 28. He would be succeeded by his six-year-old son, Ptolemy VI Philometor, meaning the lover of his mother, which given that she was also his regent, makes a certain amount of sense. His mother was Cleopatra the Syrian, the same Cleopatra that was given by the Seleucid king in an effort to bring the two countries closer together. She would serve as his regent for five years, until her death. Of course, this means that he was only 11 years old when his regent died, and therefore still in need of a guide. Who actually filled this role, though, is currently unknown. In 173 BC, when he was 14 years old, Ptolemy VI would marry his sister Cleopatra II. As you could probably guess, given the recent history I've covered, this was relatively normal for the kings of the period. Three years later, another war in Syria against the Seleucids would erupt, this one becoming known as the Sixth Syrian War. The Seleucids would invade Egypt in 169, leading to internal trouble within the country. And then things got a bit confusing. Number Six's brother, known as Ptolemy VIII, would seize the throne, becoming the co-ruler with his sister, who was also number six's wife, Cleopatra II. The three siblings, who were also competing rulers, and a husband and wife, would reconcile shortly afterwards. And you would think all was well. And you'd be wrong. The Seleucids would invade again the next year, and the same process would repeat. Again. This time, number six was driven from the country by his brother, number eight, in 164 BC. And if you're paying attention, and if I haven't thoroughly confused you, you may be wondering why I'm discussing Ptolemy's six and eight, but not number seven. Well, seven was the son of six, and was a child during this period. I'll get to him later. After being driven from the country, number six traveled to Rome, where he pleaded with their leadership for support. Remember, at the time, Egypt was somewhat allied with Rome against the Seleucids, and number six found favor on the Boot Peninsula, as the Romans mediated and sought to split the baby, dividing up the territory, granting number six both Cyprus and Egypt, 
Number eight would be given Cyrenaica, in what is today Eastern Libya. By this time, number six was getting a little bit more politically savvy, and since he not only had to contend with enemies external, but also internal. Sometime around 150 BC, he recognized Alexander Balas as the Seleucid king and tried his own hand at cementing a relationship by marrying his daughter, Cleopatra Thea, to the Seleucid king. But number six apparently couldn't resist temptation. In 145 BC, when Alexander was quashing a rebellion in Cilicia on the southern Anatolian coast, Ptolemy VI invaded Syria. In doing so, he allowed Alexander's vassal, Jonathan Maccabee, to pass safely through Judea, after which he captured the city of Seleucia. Remember that name, Jonathan Maccabee. But number six wasn't done. He then had his daughter remarry a different leader. Remember, she was originally married to the Seleucid king. Anyway, six gave her to Alexander's rival, Demetrius II. Number six, still not quite done yet, then traveled to Antioch, where he crowned himself the king of Asia. Alexander would return, enraged, of course, but he would be defeated by number six. Alexander then beat a hasty path to the Arabian Peninsula, but it didn't help as he would meet his demise there. With all this fighting and marrying and crowning, for the first time since the death of Alexander the Great, Egypt and Syria were united, and it lasted for a whopping three days, as Ptolemy died of unknown causes at the age of 40, in 145 BC, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Ptolemy VII and number 8. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.